Some people like superhero stories. You know, and maybe spend about a billion dollars at a box office to see a movie over a weekend. Others like sad stories. We all can think of a favorite bedtime story. It's often said of us human beings that we are a storytelling race. The call of the story, the prehistoric campfire where stories were acted out. Huge industries today have been built up just around celebrity stories. Or how about sports? The news, scores, results, the stories we remember from our own athletic exploits, however scanty they may be in my case. Stories, stories, stories. Stock stories. Yep, every stock tells a story. As investors, we get to know our company's mission, maybe know their marketing tagline. That's a story. We follow the share price. We experience highs and lows, sometimes dizzying heights or cavernous losses, sometimes both. Our experience as investors gives us the long view, the foolish view, acquaints us with great prosperity-creating stories. And especially look across a portfolio, look up and down your brokerage statement, and I bet you see stories. So, a few times a year, we focus on telling stories. We're a stock market podcast, so these are stock stories. Visiting me around the campfire this week are several talented Motley Fool contributors, each of whom has a story to tell. Five stock stories on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Motley Fool Rule Breakers. If you're ready to learn how to take control of your financial future, then you're ready for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Our average Rule Breakers recommendation has returned over 160% over the last 15 years. The S&P 500, the market average, only 71%. That's right, more than a double. Go to joinrb.fool.com to learn more. That's joinrb.fool.com. Returns as of April 2019. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy May. Yep, April's over. It's time for May. April was a wonderful month on this podcast. We had a lot of fun last week with our mailbag. In fact, I forgot to play up my overall theme that I was going to do the whole show long. I totally spaced it. But here it was for posterity's sake. I've done every one of these podcasts, a new one a week. As it turns out, through last week, 200 of them. 200 consecutive weeks. Last week was our 200th Rule Breaker Investing podcast. And I was going to make a big deal about it. I was going to ask Rick Angdahl to come up with some musical theme, some fanfare. I was going to ask each guest because the mailbag was replete with guests, as it always is. I was going to ask each of them, what significance does the number 200 have for you? I was just going to 200 up the entire podcast. We finished the mailbag, and I realized I never even once mentioned that that was our 200th podcast. But maybe that's, maybe that's foolish, with a capital F. Maybe all the other cool kids, with you know the people paying attention to conventional wisdom, who count things, and are responsible, and remember things. Maybe that's how they roll. But we're fools. We do things differently. We completely forget 200th anniversaries. And in fact, in conferring with my producer and sidekick, Rick Engdahl, Rick pointed out, hey, round numbers are overrated, aren't they? I mean, that whole, do you remember the Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to hit 20,000 at some point? Or a certain company is going to go over a trillion dollar market cap, and it sounds like something to wait for. And then when it finally happens, people aren't even really remembering it a few weeks later. So, um, so maybe that's how it is. So let's celebrate the 201st Rule Breaker Investing podcast. And for those who've been with us, all 201, 
you definitely deserve a free Starbucks on yourself or something, some gesture of thanks for us that we're not actually going to pay for. You get an at a fool. We slap you on the back and say thanks a lot. And for those who, for whom this might be your very first rule breaker investing podcast, welcome. You found us in number two hundred one. So I've got queued up stories. In fact, we've built a little campfire that doesn't actually exist right here in the center of our podcast studios here at Fool HQ. There's a little kindling and some embers and an occasional hiss and a pop. In fact, we can generate sound effects to make you feel that, Rick Engdahl. Thank you. And so you're now in the mood. You're you're feeling it. We're talking about the stories around stocks. And each of the stories, each of my storytellers this week is bringing a certain stock that they have in mind, a title to their story, and then I hope a a good one-line takeaway. Maybe these are didactic stories, morally instructive stories, or maybe they're just pure silly fun. I'm not really sure, but I have asked each of our storytellers to bring it home with a line that you can remember and take away from this special campfire that we're sharing together. So this is Stock Stories Volume 3. We last did this series last summer, June 6, 2018. History will show with Stock Stories Volume 2. I enjoy doing this at least once a year. So without further ado, let's get started. My first storyteller, my good friend Aaron Bush. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be here on the 201st episode. Isn't that an amazing number? It only did, happens once. Did you know that the number 201 is divisible by 3? You know, I've never thought about that before, but I know you're very talented mathematically, Aaron. So I wouldn't be surprised if you're aware of this mathma trick, and I know many of our listeners are. But if if you, dear listener, were not, you can take any number and just add up the digits, and if it's divisible by three, that number is divisible by three. So when I see two zero one, Aaron, two plus zero plus one equals three. Is that divisible by three? Yes, it is. And so is the two hundred first podcast for Rule Breaker Investing. So yes, very very special. So honored. Every three. I mean, we bring our biggest every three. So here we are. Aaron, you've brought a story to the table. I have. So the story I have today is about Under Armour, or more specifically, my story with Under Armour. And let us call this story I Will Protect This Portfolio. <laughs> okay, I already get the illusion because many of us who followed Under Armour remember the whole Protect This House, which is a big part of their branding, I'm going to say 10 years ago. Has it been that long? Maybe fifteen. It feels wow. like a long time ago. But no, maybe you would know better than I, Aaron. This is your story, and my memory, I have to admit, is not that great. Okay, so so before jumping straight in, let's start with the prologue. Um, I bought my my first stocks ever in two thousand six, two thousand seven, which, as history now notes, was the calm before the worst stock market storm in decades. Um, and to make things worse, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, but as you can imagine, that's a pretty good time period to learn. Aaron, um, how old are you in two thousand six ish? Eleven ish. So yeah, yeah, really knew nothing. Love it. You're uh, buying <laughs> stocks at the age of eleven. Keep going. Well, uh, it didn't start very well. So using at that time, I was using Value Line, using their their ratings on timeliness, on safety, opportunity. I decided to buy a bunch of blue chip blue chip stocks like Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble. But also, and super embarrassing to admit now, a bunch of financial stocks like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, okay. AIG. It was going to be rough, on? rough seas within 24 months of your purchasing. It was. It was very rough. Um, so, as you can imagine, that didn't end well. I had brutal losses on a bunch of stocks, um, a bunch of stocks I knew nothing about. 
So let's go and enter chapter one here, where Under Armour comes. And I was still learning, but based on those losses and and understanding that I knew very little about those stocks, I recognized that something had to change. So what I decided is that instead of just using these these arbitrary ratings that other you know publications throw out, um, I would decide to think for myself, look for obviously great companies that I understood. And the first company that comes to mind um, for me at that time period was Under Armour. That was a stock that I I bought um, you know early 2009. I had I had just gotten rid of a bunch of those those financial stocks. I had more than enough <laughs> to do uh, with that at the time. And were you like wearing Under Armour as a kid, or you were seeing other kids rocking the Under yeah, Armour logos? That, that is part of it. So, so at the time, the the stock was trading for I think a split adjusted three dollars. But more importantly, I like the brand, and I I saw in front of my very eyes the popularity rise right in front of me at school, right as the the financial turmoil uh, was you know going widespread. Stealing all the headlines. Under Armour wasn't in those headlines, but despite the the crisis, it was actually doing pretty well, and I could see it right in front of me. Um, so after reflection, I bought some of those stocks, uh, bought some shares in Under Armour, and that that really marked in my mind a radical change in my investment philosophy from using you know value line and other people's thinking to looking at my own life, mm. thinking for myself understanding more clearly what makes for a multi-bagger, looking for a lot of times small companies with long runways, swift growth, and also understanding the importance of what you cannot assign numbers to, Mm. the importance of great management, in this case, Kevin Plank, um, and then the power of a great brand, which doesn't show up in the cash flow statement in any way at all. Um, So, for years, this stock was phenomenal. It it rose from you know about the three dollars that I purchased split it to split adjusted, yeah, split adjusted up to about fifty dollars um, in 2015. So at, for a time, I was you know earning 15x or so of the money that I put in, and yeah. it became very quickly a large percentage of my own portfolio. And that's really because Under Armour was rapidly expanding into new countries. They were launching new verticals all the time. They were seizing major partnerships with with big athletes. They even had an Olympic deal um, sometime in there. So, what could go wrong, David? Everything was fantastic. Uh, well, it turns out things can go wrong, um, even with great companies. And in 2015, um, they announced the acquisition of a couple major fitness apps, um, mm-hmm. Including Map My Fitness, probably most notably, and that sounds fine until you realize that Connected Fitness was much more sizzle than steak. Um, that business model really had nothing to do, no direct um, plug-in with to, the apparel industry, right? With selling apparel, selling shoes, um, and they also completely decimated their balance sheet. They they got rid of most of their cash. They took on a ton of debt to buy these apps that ultimately fizzled out. And there were also signs, I think, at that time, very early signs, that traditional retail um, could be problematic and decelerate growth one day. So, if you take that and then also compare it to the fact that the stock was trading for about 80 times earnings at the time, um, there were, in my mind, I saw a pretty clear mismatch between, man, this isn't as great as everybody seems to think it is, and wow, this is one of the most expensive stocks I see out there right now. And I'm a person who's typically okay buying the stocks that a lot of people think are expensive. As am I, and that's part of what we teach on this podcast. And I have to say, Aaron, even though I know that the next chapter of the story is hard times for the company, and in some ways they might still be mired 
in chapter two, if you will. But fortunately, it's not chapter eleven, and uh, that is true. And I think that Kevin Plank uh, was trying, in some ways, to get ahead of where the future was going to be and make investments in a technology platform and transition the company. At least this is what I was saying about the stock. It remains an active recommendation in rule breakers today. Yeah, and I do think a lot of his thinking. Is still is prescient. It was just a mix of bad timing, a mix of poor capital allocation. Yeah. Um, not everything was terrible, but for the sake of this company at that time, um, it didn't work. And so, in a rare stroke of great timing on my part, which almost never happens, and I'm glad I get to tell this story. That's why we're telling <laughs> stories—the greatest things that we can tell. I I actually sold about 90% of my position in 2015, wow. right near the top. I still I still own shares in Under Armour today. Um, and I almost never sell like that, but I saw a very clear deterioration in the business paired with that euphoric pricing, and it made me paranoid. And it was a paranoia that I couldn't quite shake. Wow! And this was maybe your biggest holding, or one of your biggest holdings. This was a top three holding, and you shaved ninety percent of it off right before the fall. Right before the fall. You didn't drop me an email or let me know? it. You probably did, and I wasn't paying attention. I, I probably should have, <laughs> is, is the better answer. I've owned the stock all the way through, but I've never <laughs> shaved the position, and as a consequence, I, I haven't done nearly as well as you have, Aaron. Well, I would say this is one of the rare times where I timed it well on, on both sides, buying right in the middle of the financial crisis and being able, um, mm. in, a, in a rare stroke of timing, to be able to pinpoint where trouble was about to begin, and that leads to the next chapter where trouble um, did strike. Um, a lot of those concerns that I had about um, how their acquisition of those fitness apps and what it means for their balance sheet and what what it could you know, just missing the ball on uh, apparel sales um, and such. The company's growth did decelerate. They did face issues with some of their larger retailers, and largely. Um, since 2017, from 2015 to 2017, the stock dropped about 75% or so. Um, and since 2017, it's been a story of them recognizing their mistakes and reorienting the business mm-hmm. for their next phase of growth. The story isn't over, but they are refocusing on verticals that matter most to them, um, focusing extra on going direct to consumer. Um, which I think a lot of companies are doing right now. You also see that with Disney, for example. Um, and they're ensuring that the right people are in the right roles, and you see some leadership shakeups. Now, I think um, a lot of this could have been done earlier, but I do think it is a promising sign that they are willing to admit their mistakes mm-hmm. um, and correct for the future. And I, as I mentioned, I still do remain a shareholder, and I, I do think that whatever the next chapter is, I do think that Under Armour will be able to to hit new all-time highs. Um, I think the company will look different. It might take some patience, but I think it could very well happen. All right. So, how about the one line takeaway then? The didactic, instructive moment for all of our rule breaker investing listeners. Think for yourself and stay ready to evolve as an investor. I got to vote for that, Aaron. And thank you for sharing that story. A um, little bit of pattern recognition. I mean, you're describing it as luck, but before I let you go, are there ways you can map what happened there into a more generic or abstract lesson that you can make us all a little bit smarter and have a have our eyes on something? Well, I think a lot of times, and Peter Lynch is probably the most renowned for for saying for saying this, but just look around in your own life. I think you'll you'll be surprised by what you see: new brands popping up, new new services, new products that you're interested in. And a lot of times, especially if you're more an early adopter, 
you can also become more of an early investor in those companies mm-hmm. as well, and there's significant upside. Um, I don't think there are as simple of heuristics for when to sell, mm-hmm. especially when companies look like they're excelling. But I'm, I mean, I will stick with stick with what I was saying and just think for yourself. A lot of times, the herd moves in both ways. It moves towards being really against something to being really for it. And a lot of times, when when the herd is super for something, and you can start to to look at the numbers that things are breaking apart a little bit, or you disagree with the strategy. I mean, don't be afraid to think for yourself. Sometimes it pays off. All right. The stock was under armor. The title of Aaron's story, I will protect this portfolio, which you did, Aaron. And thank you again for the lesson. Think for yourself. Stay ready to evolve. Thanks, David. All right. It's time for stock story number two. And for this one, I go down to one of my favorite states in the Union, one of my favorite people in that state. We're headed to Florida, somewhere in and around the Miami area, I believe, and it's my friend Rick Minares. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, David. Thanks. And are you, in fact, somewhere around Miami right now, or are you on the road? I am actually in Miami right now, yes. How's the weather? I can't not. Anytime I fly in, I just see these beautiful blue pools all around as we start to get lower and lower. Your beautiful airport there. Throw me some color, some Miami color, Rick. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful as a tourist, and it's great to live here. I'm not complaining to live here, but uh, these wonderful, beautiful beaches, nice warm sun. Uh, when you live here day in and day out, it does feel hot, even over the winter. So, yes, uh, there's definitely, uh, it's always the grass is always greener on the other side, but, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I love Florida. The beaches are always whiter, you're saying? Somewhere else? <laughs> well, not, not not that they're wider anywhere else. I guess when they're snow covered, but just uh, for the most part, uh, these beaches uh, you can get everything. You get I get old after a while. Even beaches and sun and and and, and palm trees. I guess it's true, even for Miami. Rick, what is the stock you'll be presenting a story about? Well, I'm going to take you far away from Florida. I'm going to take you all the way to New Hampshire uh, to talk about Planet Fitness. Uh, and my title of my story is Subtraction is the Best Edition. And this story starts uh, with a guy by the name of Chris Rondo. And he's a college student. Uh, he loves to work out. Uh, he had his first gym membership when he was 16 years old. Uh, so he gets the front working at the front desk of this. Uh, basically, it's a gold gym that was failing, uh, was bought out by two brothers, and it's sort of refashioned as the very first Planet Fitness. And this is in rural New Hampshire. There's a, a city called Dover, a population of about 30,000. And they want to differentiate themselves from every other gym. Because even in a town with just 30,000 people, there are a lot of places to work out. Uh, so they basically say, you know, we're going to work on price because that's always been a pressure point for people. Uh, we don't want to be just for, you know, diehard uh, gym workout people. We want to go in and give them a good price. So they get a low price, but then they found uh, just a matter of time that instead of like becoming this popular mainstream kind of gym, mm-hmm. they wound up just attracting all the cheapskates at the other gym. <laughs> so they said, okay, we don't want that. Um, you know, it's not that we don't mind, uh, you know, I guess the lunkheads, as they say, the guys that really, and women that really just like to work out and pump iron and grunt uh, while they're doing heavy workouts, but that really wasn't what they wanted to be about. Uh, so they got rid of the heavyweights. Uh, then they got rid of the smoothie bar. Then they got rid of the daycare center, um, which is going to be controversial. But at the same time, they also got rid of the fitness classes. So all the stuff that, you know, your L.A. Fitness and whatever major brand is values, whatever fit major brand is by you, um, with the traditional gym uh, fitness center, they said, we're not going to do it. We're just wow. going to have great exercise equipment. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and we'll just charge $10 a month for it. And right away it resonated, so uh, it just it started picking up steam. And it, there's no, it's not one of these costly things. They're not a hard sell. They're not trying to, uh, you know, set you up with a fitness trainer or some long interview. They don't tour you around the place trying to sell you stuff. 
There's no smoothie at the end of the day. Uh, they do have free pizza days every once in a while. And then along the way, this Chris Rondo, um, he becomes a club manager. Then he becomes a regional manager, then a VP. And in 2013, 20 years after he was checking memberships at the door, he becomes its CEO. How about that? And Planet Fitness went public two years after that. So, so they went public at 16 in 2015. And I sort of, uh, right away, I mean, I always look at new IPOs. So, I mean, this is a company that sort of intrigued me, uh, even though I'll, I'll admit I'm an L.A. fitness member. So I, only because it, they're about two blocks away from me. So I you know I'm speaking from the, from the, from the, from the wrong side of this argument. Uh, but I really enjoyed what they're doing. And the most impressive to me was how fast they were growing. It's growing. They have a couple company-owned stores, but it's mostly franchisees uh, who are pulling the weight here. And the stock was at 16, and they paid out like a $2.78 a share dividend. Uh, just a year later, just sort of just distributing stuff as, as things went out. Hmm. But then the company, um, when, when we discovered it over on the rule breakers end of the supernova side, uh, the, the stock was actually just about where it was when it went public. So this wasn't like some scintillating hot stock um, out there. I think it was actually below the IPO price uh, when we first uh, recommended it. And so ever since then, the stock's been on fire. Um, I mean, this is a stock that's basically more than quadrupled uh, since going public. It's at 75 now. So this is a stock that was at 16 mm. four summers ago. And, and even lower than that, uh, you know, it was, it was a broken IPO for a while, and it's clearly done everything right. They've, the most impressive thing to me about, about Planet Fitness is their comps. And you're thinking comparative store sales, uh, it's something, a term that you usually see with restaurants or with retail stores. But it's important for gym memberships because this is an industry where people say, oh, it's fickle. People sign up after, you know, after they, they basically, uh, you know, over the holidays, they overeat. In January, they have New, the New Year's resolution. Yep. And even if you saw Times Square, you know, Planet Fitness was a sponsor there. Right when the ball dropped, there was a big Planet Fitness billboard uh, over the New Year's this year. But it's not, it's not the case with Planet Fitness. They've had 48 consecutive quarters of comps. So we're now up to 1,742 Planet Fitnesses uh, lo- located around the country and starting to expand internationally, you know, on, on a small scale. Uh, but this is the same company that, you know, the guy, you know, who's, who basically started working the desk at one uh, gym is now running over the company that running the company that's now 1,742. And revenue keeps growing. Uh, it's double digit consistently. Uh, last year was its strongest growth in more than four years, mm. uh, with earnings growing even faster. So basically, here's a company that to disrupt the gym system, to make it accessible to the 80% of people that wouldn't be caught dead in a gym or signing up for these $50, $60 a month memberships that are just high pressure and you're just looking around and saying, I don't feel good about myself. Everyone who looks so much better than me, they have, I mean, posted right across all their other gyms, a judgment-free zone. I mean, they basically just try to police that. Uh, you know, they know that, that they're cashing in on the young people, that they're very health-conscious and self-conscious about what they look like in this Instagram selfie generation, mm. and the older people just want to stay fit. Uh, but they don't want people just bragging about it or anything like that. So it's just a, a cool company that has stuck a great core cashing in where rural America and urban America now, I mean, just basically the whole country, Buying their pockets in these strip urban strip malls in the suburbs, basically, where big retailers are moving out, and there's a lot of space for them to come in and get in cheap, and uh, basically just move over with their you know 10,000 square feet of heavy equipment. And growing they are. And Rick, you brought this stock to Motley Fool Rule Breakers. I'm seeing right now the date, uh, the publishing date of that was January 27, 2016. So we're talking about just over three years. And yeah, the price that day was $11.93. I had forgotten that the company IPO'd higher than that. Turns out you don't have to buy every IPO in those first few days or even months. But it's remarkable to watch that ascent from about $12 a share to about $75, as you mentioned today. I know it's exceeded your expectations. Mine as well. It's a six bagger. 
Um, but a company that illustrates a lot of what we're talking about in Rule Breakers, which is finding companies that improve the world, brands that you recognize, often driven. And I love the story that you told of Dover, New Hampshire. You know, these are real people, flesh and blood, our fellow Earthlings who are coming up with ideas and building great companies around them and helping out the world. So I think Planet Fitness is a lot of what we're about, and a lot of what you do as a great stock picker for Rule Breaker investing. Rick, let me ask you in closing, what's a what's a one-line takeaway that I as a listener should remember from the story of Planet Fitness? Sometimes the best way to step up as a disruptor is to take a step back. If you want to revolutionize an industry, you don't have to make things more complicated. In the case of Chris Rondo and everyone at Planet Fitness, they just basically scaled back to the essentials of what a gym is all about. And sometimes that's enough. Mm. You know, companies and brands that sort of democratize the world make it simpler. Think about how simple Apple has made computers or Netflix made finding good entertainment. You don't have to go down to the store anymore or pay late fees. It's all just a click away and it keeps getting better, seemingly. So these are some of the great companies of our time. And darn it, these are all active recommendations that we have at Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. Thanks in part to people like you. Rick Minars, thank you for your story about Planet Fitness. Thank you, David. All right, stock story number three from Miami to another great American city, Austin, Texas, and another great stock picker and fellow fool, Carl Teal. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Carl, it's great to have you. And you were part of the Dream Team a few weeks ago on this podcast. I know you think and talk a lot about biotechnology. I know the stock that you have for us this week is not a biotech company about which you know reams, but still within the medical field. I think it's one of my favorite stocks. I don't know if it's one of yours. We're going to find out. Carl, you're presenting? Intuitive Surgical. Awesome. And what is the title of your story? The title of my story is Disruption Surprises Nearly Everyone, Especially the Disrupted. Awesome. Go. Okay, so my story begins um, around 10 years ago when I was having some minor elective surgery done that meant uh, spending some quality time in the presence of a urologist. Okay. I'll, just, I'll just apologize for the TMI for our, our more sensitive <laughs> listeners, but it, it is relevant. Sounds like you'd had uh, enough kids at that point. Yes, yes. All right, keep going. So, Intuitive Surgical had already been on our scorecard for around uh, four years at that point. But um, if you recall 2009, you'll, you'll know I wasn't the only person feeling pretty vulnerable that day. Um, the market was in disarray. It just it seemed like everything could just drop forever. And um, Intuitive Surgical had been a multi-bagger for us. You know, RR, and you, you probably remember this well, this is, this is one of your, you know, many great picks. Um, our Rule Breaker's original cost point was just under $15 a share. Right, and the stock had run up to a high of around 120, so it had gone up like eightfold, um, and then just dropped, Ugh. dropped way back to the point that I think it got back down to around 30. So it was still, you know, it was a nice winner for us, but boy, we had we had just, you know, a lot of money had been taken off. Yeah, the down about 75 percent doesn't feel good, even when you still have a two bagger. <laughs> right, and 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 to make it perhaps worse than that, it was actually by 2009, it was a four time recommendation. And um, I think one or maybe two of those positions were actually losing money mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, so since I had some time on my hands, I was asking the urologist about the Da Vinci system, since he also did other kinds of surgery. And uh, I wanted to know about its its, its uses. And, and at the time, you may also recall that, that 
really the, the da Vinci was finding its way in prostatectomy, which is the surgical removal of the prostate. Um, and, and wasn't really being used for, a, you know, a whole lot else in, in volume, but that was really where it was finding a home. And, and this urologist who did those surgeries told me, no, it's a flash in the pan. You know, it doesn't really bring, doesn't, doesn't let you do anything that a competent surgeon can't do himself. The machines are expensive. You use a lot of expensive accessories with them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it still requires a lot of the same expertise and training. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to be successful. Now, I remember that. And that was, in, I'm not going to say that was the party line because the medical world is full of many different viewpoints and different practitioners and professionals, but it wasn't uncommon back then, and even still sometimes we hear today, Carl, from people who are surgeons in the field who say, you know, that robot is not necessary, it's expensive. By the way, it might not be something I'm trained on, it might be disrupting my whole field, and maybe I've been around for a few decades doing the work. But regardless, that was back then, I would say, much more, probably the dominant viewpoint. It sounded disruptive and a little crazy to have a surgeon use the Da Vinci surgical robot, which was Intuitive Surgical's big product. Right. And that's, you know, so, so sitting there or, you know, thinking about this, hmm. um, I, you know, this is a person obviously with an expert opinion and has a, a heck of a lot more reason than I do to know where the field is going. Um, so it's, you know, that's, a, that's an influential thing to hear. But, you know, I ultimately, and, and I hate to say this, but I, I small f foolishly, I have never personally owned intuitive surgical. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was really trying to think about the, West, the best way to cover it um, for, for members and we talked about it on the boards at the time, but I, you know, I ultimately decided that this is this is just a single this is a single data point. Let's let's dismiss it. Um, you know, this was a guy who was entrenched in the way of doing things. He has a lot of investment in in the expertise that he's already gotten, and I, I'm glad to say that he proved to be a very competent surgeon. Uh, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't a known thought leader in the field who maybe would weigh a little more heavily at that. Mm. So I ultimately ended up deciding this this you know this is a blip don't take it too seriously you know listen obviously put it out there let people talk about it but don't take it too seriously and you know i don't i don't have to say that that you know a the da vinci did not turn out to be just about doing urological procedures it's used for a lot more than that that's right and b the stock is over 500 dollars today um but you know i i think about this because it's come up actually with our most recent recommendation shockwave medical which which just went out um, and uh, I have heard both expert opinions from heart surgeons, both for and against, already. And I am very interested to hear what those opinions are and why. But you know, it's 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 not going to necessarily weigh too heavily, um, and, and until it really becomes more than a single data point. So maybe I can guess at it, Carl. But what's the what's the big one line takeaway for listeners? One expert opinion is still just one data point. <laughs> and, you know, part of the benefit of the discussion boards that we've hosted on Fool.com for a few decades now is that a lot of us do just have one data point. It might be our own opinion or it might be a professional in our life, a lawyer, a money manager, or in this case, a doctor. And it's hard for us to know what anybody else thinks of things until we start to use social media or discussion boards, join in a community. The Fool community is a great one for me, anyway, and hear other people's viewpoints. So I think ultimately the reason that we recommended Intuitive Surgical in the first place is because we heard a wider array of viewpoints and started to realize that this 
This disruptive technology really might change the world. And I'm really happy to say, yeah, you're right. The stock had gone right from 15, where we recommended it, to 120, as you mentioned, then down to 50 at the time you were having that conversation. And today it's $500 a share. So it has absolutely rocked. So thank you for that lesson, Carl. I really do believe that um, a single data point is just that. And I think we owe it to ourselves, especially with our money and our portfolios, to seek more opinions, sometimes ones that might surprise us or be different from our own. All right, so Intuitive Surgical, Carl, your title, Disruption Surprises Nearly Everyone, Especially the Disrupted. Thank you very much for joining me once again on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. All right, three stories down, two to go. But first, do you like what you hear on this podcast? Are you ready to invest better, but you're not sure where to start? Well, how about Motley Fool Rule Breakers? I think we can help. Our average Rule Breakers recommendation, we've been talking about some of them on this show, up over 164% over the past 15 years. The S&P 500, the market average, by contrast, up 74% on average. So, yeah, that's more than a double over the market. We're proud that The Economist called us, quote, an ethical oasis in the financial industry, end quote. And if you're ready to take control of your financial future, then you're ready for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Go to joinrb, go to joinrb.fool.com to learn more. And for a limited time, my podcast listeners will get up to 67% off the Rule Breakers entry Price. Just go to joinrb.fool.com to sign up. Returns as of April 2019. All right, stock story number four, Emily Flippin in the house. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you again for having me. I'm delighted to have you again, Emily. I'm tempted to ask you about the market cap of the company you're going to be telling a story about, but we're not going to do that right now. You okay, can that's good. It. I don't think I know it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right. What is your stock story? So today I'm going to be talking about a stock that has been a silent performer that a lot of people, unless you are a uh, hardcore rule breakers follower, may not be aware of. Love it's it. New Oriental Education. New Oriental Education, yep, a stock that we recommended years ago. As you're mentioning, it's quiet. I have to admit, right now, I don't know exactly where the share price is. I know it's been, I think it's been a quiet winner. Maybe that's part of the story. But Emily, what's the title of your story? The title of my story is The Super Short, a story of hope, loss, and redemption in China. Awesome. The Super Short. So it's like, the big short. Is this a plan words? I think of it Michael Lewis's book. It is kind of like book. the big short, but hopefully, you know, it doesn't cause a recession and we all come <laughs> out of it better. All right, start. Sure. So the year is 2006, and we have a small Chinese education company come public on U.S. markets. And needless to say, the market's been doing well. The valuation looks a little lopsided in their favor, and investors are very fearful. Not just fearful because maybe this is a pricey stock for a company that just teaches Chinese people how to speak English, but this is a Chinese company and it's a small Chinese company. Lots of questions about, you know, is this even real or can I believe the balance sheet or the numbers? These kinds of concerns. Exactly. So when they come public, there's a lot of interest, but also a lot of fear. And there's a lot of people out there saying, this is clearly a fraudulent company. Mm. If it's not just because the company is is lying, inflating its numbers, it's because the Chinese government is lying and and controlling the company with their kind of backhand. So 
it's a company that a lot of investors are extremely nervous about. And if you take the time to go back and read a lot of these articles written about New Oriental Which education, I always love. I, and maybe you did that in preparation yes. for this. I'm not expecting you did. That's that's above and beyond what we would ever expect on this podcast, because I'm most of the time just shooting from the hip and making up all my stories and facts. But, Emily, thank you for going back if you did, because I always think we don't do that enough in our society today. We tend to just, what's the next headline? But we learn so much by remembering what people were saying back in the day. Exactly. And if you go back and read these articles, which I definitely encourage anybody who's listening to do so, you'll see that things were not looking great for New Oriental. And there's a lot of investor fear. And despite the stock having a nice run up from 2006, it did manage to survive our, our you know pullback here in the US. There was still a lot of investor fear for years leading up to this. And what happened is in 2012, we got a short report. And it was really only a matter of time before a short report on this company came out, or really any small cap Chinese company. Now, when you say short report, do you mean what I would characterize often as a short attack? A short attack is an aggressive way to say it, but undoubtedly, Muddy Waters reported it. Of course, they are short the stock, so they have okay, economic okay. interest in pushing the stock price down. But this report comes out and says some very egregious things about the company, essentially saying they're lying, not only about the way they make money, but about the way they report money. They're lying to their auditors, they're lying to their investors, they're lying to the government. Mm. And these are Huge claims. It stints the stock plummeting. Now, I remember we first recommended this stock. It was, in fact, pretty much this week, just about <laughs> April 28, 2010. So it was nine years ago, pretty much this week. The stock was at 22 back then. Do you remember where it dropped after or around that 2012 report? It had just been off of its 52 week high, which is around $32. Okay. So just off that high, within a matter of days, there was an investigation into their accounting in this short report, which sent the stock down to $11. Wow. I had forgotten. Just that about probably half. hurt. I forgot the pain I was feeling at the time because we were up 50%, and all of a sudden we were down 50% from 22 down to 11. Exactly. And needless to say, if you look at a, a graph of New Oriental Education stock price today, I dare you to even find that 50% drop. Mm. Because after that drop, the company went on to be a clear outperformer. Now it's at a price of about $95. I think its high was around $108. Okay. Um, and so if you look at this price, it's just a 50% drop, which at the time felt like the end of the world for this company. I mean, there are accounting errors, they're lying to the investors to turn around and report amazing results for years afterwards, mm. really showing that this was just a blip in an otherwise kind of flawless radar. Now, Emily, those who've gotten to know you uh, may remember that you were a Motley Fool intern in the year 2016, and now happy ending, or really happy beginning, you're a full-time employee here at The Fool. But I know you spent some years in China. Did you ever see the new Oriental Education and Technology Group name or brand? Were you aware of the company when you were in China? I was aware of it just from a perspective of, of seeing it around me. I don't think it ever really occurred to me when I was there that this was a public company mm -hmm. in the US, which at the time it was, but it was everywhere. Mm. And so, hindsight looking back, you think, well, of course it's a legitimate business. I saw the people, I saw the, the stores, the customers, the teachers. I had friends who worked with the organization on a kind of a freelance basis, mm. but hindsight really is. 2020. And it's interesting because while this is just one story about one stock, 
it can really be applied to how we're seeing Chinese companies today. Going back to reading those articles about New Oriental, I see the same things happening to many of the companies, Chinese companies that are going public recently. There's always questions about how much can you believe? Are they defrauding investors? Mm. Are they lying? Are they even a legitimate business in China? And so it's really funny to see how we see these same concerns rear their head a, over a decade later. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, what is the one-liner takeaway that you want us to remember from this story? I'd have to say that it's really that history repeats itself. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But anytime you're thinking, this is the end of the world, your stock is down 50%, remember, history shows it's not. Mm. New Oriental Education and Technology Group, the ticker symbol is EDU, which is a pretty good description of what the business does. And even though they were a Chinese company, they were the ones who got EDU on the New York Stock Exchange. And yes, they've been operating for quite a while and very successfully. And Emily, as you mentioned, very quietly. Most people don't know that stock or company even today, and yet it's gone from 22 to around 95 as we speak today. A wonderful long-term hold, which is what we do at Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Motley Fool Stock Advisor, and that's what the Motley Fool's teaching the world, is play for the only term that counts, the long-term. Emily, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, and stock story number five, and this one's mine. The company is Booking Holdings. The ticker symbol is BKNG. The title of my story, I'd Rather Be Lucky and Good. So, Booking Holdings, not a company name that comes trippingly off the tongue, not one of the better sounding corporate names. I think it doesn't conjure up images like Disney or Apple for many of us. But if you remember Priceline, which is certainly still a going concern and an important one today, but this is the company that ultimately buying out booking.com which was the priceline the travel booking platform for Europe ultimately priceline decided to take on bookings name so today we say booking holdings for a company that has ownership interests in similar platforms in the United States in Asia and in Europe a substantial and remarkable american company well my story begins on May 21st of 2004. Yep, that was the first day that we published our recommendation of Priceline. I picked it that day, and what I want you to know now is I had the thesis completely wrong. At the time, I was thinking that this company, which was coming off of the ruins of 2001, it was one of those dot-com, dot-bombs, you may remember William Shatner doing singing and its ads, and Priceline was a big deal in the late 1990s, an early mover in the travel space, but 2001 hurt everything. I remember Amazon.com went from 95 to 7 that year, so Priceline was no exception. It had been devastated by the stock market and perceptions about the internet and really the staying power of the internet. Like, will this whole internet thing even work? Yep, people were still wondering that in 2004 when we found Priceline. Now, my wrong thesis at the time was I was thinking it was the third player in its industry at the time, and I was thinking this company probably will get bought out. And so that's what we wrote up at the time. In fact, since I'm a board gamer, I know many of you know that, I was likening it to the game of Acquire. For those who know, I'm not going to teach the rules of Acquire right now, but suffice it to say that one of the ways to play the board game, the classic board game, the Sid Saxon board game Acquire, is to buy little spaces on the board, little companies, little hotel chains that you then hope will get eaten, bought out by the bigger hotel chains that are growing on the board in front of you as we lay tiles, because you're investing in each of these um, 
chains that we're building together on the board in front of us as we play the game of Acquire. And I thought Priceline was one of those little companies that you want to own the shares of in the game of Acquire because it's going to get bought out. And instead, what ended up happening, history will show, is that it became the biggest company and began to acquire others. So while I'm tempted to already give you my one line takeaway, I'm even more tempted by the notion of giving you a few different takeaways from this one because I think it's so instructive and rich. But from $23.71 in 2004, the price meandered, didn't do much, and then all of a sudden started skyrocketing in the late 2000s. By 2010, the stock had hit 193. So it was from 23 to 193 as it became the world leader. And it was at that moment that we re recommended the stock. And I remember at the time people were saying, Hey, guys, it's already up eight times in value. You think that we should be buying this one here? I'm really happy to say that now, nine years later, it's gone from 193 to about 1,866. Now, I could tell more about the story, but A, we're late in this podcast anyway, and B, a lot of you already know the business and the nature of what Priceline and Booking are doing. But I do see several lessons that I want to share. And the first one is, of course, Add to your winners. One of the big themes of this podcast in 2018, say it with me, winners win. And it is our very nature as rule breaker investors to look for companies that are doing well and add to them. So while I'm certainly proud that we recommended the stock way back then, 15 years ago at $23 a share, in a way, weirdly maybe, I'm even prouder that we added at 193, seeing where it is today. I think it reminds us to invest that way. And in fact, one of my favorite podcasts we did in 2018 was the six hows of rule breaker investing. And you can go back to September 19th, 2018, and hear me go through the six traits that each of us should exhibit as investors ourselves. And one of them, Number two, specifically, is don't double down, add up, add to your winners in a world where other people seem to want to double down on their losers. So that was clearly here. A second quick takeaway names change over the course of time. When you tend to hold stocks for long periods of time, the names will change. What started as Priceline is now a different ticker symbol and a different company name. But some, in some ways, it's hard to follow long-term stories when the names change. Investors have a hard time seeing the full graphs on certain sites that'll only show it from BKNG, not back in its PCLN days. Or I think of one of our better stock picks, Marvel, which was an amazing stock pick for us in Stock Advisor. Today, that's Disney. We see that as Disney. So some of the names start to change, especially for those of us who are long-term oriented. By definition, investors and foolish investors. So there's one. Two more quick lessons. First is, foolish investing will often, especially when practiced properly over time, blow away your expectations. I had no idea when we picked the stock at $23.71 that it would be anything like what it is today, let alone have a different name and have done as well as it can. But when you stick with our principles and you find the great companies and you exhibit the six hows of rule breaker investing, you should be prepared to have your expectations blown away. But the one caveat to that is, it really takes time. The classic thing about trying to get rich quick, we have gotten rich, but we haven't done so quickly. But it's a really steady and wonderful way to watch these numbers compound and roll up over time. So, foolish investing can blow away your expectations. But the real takeaway I want you to get is that you can get the story wrong. Because I really did. I misread Priceline. But with good habits, your returns can still be oh so right. All right, there you have it. Five stocks and five stock stories. We let off with Aaron Bush, Under Armour. Think for yourself and stay ready to evolve, Aaron taught us. Second, Rick Munares. 
Planet Fitness. Rick said, sometimes the best way to step up as a disruptor is to take a step back. Yep, some of the companies that are the most powerful today don't make our lives more complex when they disrupt an industry. They make our lives, especially as consumers, simpler. Story number three came from Carl Thiel, Intuitive Surgical. Arguably a little bit of a TMI story, but we're okay with that on this show. Carl did a great job illustrating one expert opinion is still just one data point. Story number four, Emily Flippen brought us new oriental education. History repeats itself, and she's right. What people were saying about Chinese stocks 15 years ago, that they're dodgy, sounded true 10 years ago as well, and then five years ago, and it's still an argument often made today. It's not to say that Chinese accounting is in every case blameless, or that every company in any country is worthy of your investing. But when you're looking for the rule breakers, the the companies that are out front leading new industries, whether it was Baidu, which is one of our best rule breaker picks ever, a Chinese company, or the quiet new oriental education that Emily brought for us, history repeats itself. Pay attention. And finally, I close it all out with Booking Holdings, ticker symbol BKNG. You can get the story wrong, but with good habits, your returns can still be oh so right. All right, in closing, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and all Motley Fool podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, wherever you find podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at RBI Podcast and follow me on Twitter if you like, at David G. Fool. Finally, I hope you'll give us a review. Throw me some stars. Let us know how we're doing. I read every comment. Next week, we're going to be reviewing one of my five stock samplers from a few years ago, five winners in a thinking world. I definitely think it's true that the world has got thinkier, but have these winners won? We'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.